You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Jean and Cassie, I am so excited to welcome you to the Nonprofit Build Up podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yes, I mentioned earlier, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. To get us started, I would love to hear a little bit more about each of you and the work that you're currently doing with Resolve Philly. Why don't you go ahead and start, Jean? All right, sounds good. So I am Jean Friedman Rudofsky. I am the co-founder and now executive director of Resolve Philly. I am from Philadelphia originally. I worked for many years as a freelance journalist, mainly reporting outside of the United States, particularly in Latin America and Southeast Asia, but have been back here since 2016. And in 2018, Cassie and I co-founded Resolve. Resolve is a unconventional newsroom. We like to think of ourselves as the local newsroom of the future that is designed for community impact. And what that means is that our work really centers around three different streams or three different pillars. One is community responsive and participatory journalism. So offering opportunities for people who are normally just the subject or sort of passive consumers of the news to get actively involved in the newsmaking process and making sure the reporting we do really responds to information needs of people on the ground. The second part of our work is collaborative journalism. We bring together lots of local newsrooms all over Philadelphia to do reporting together rather than in competition with one another, because we fundamentally believe that the best way to serve the public interest is by having various people in the journalism sector working together instead of kind of against one another. And the third part is really thinking about how to bridge the information divide and meeting people where they're at with news and information. So not just putting reporting up on a website or behind a paywall, but sending out news and information via text message, publishing community newsletters that we distribute all around the city. So that's kind of the work that Cassie and I built over the last five years together. Jean said that she's now executive director. It's because Before she was co-executive director, we shared that executive leadership role for five years until just a couple of months ago when I transitioned away from the organization. And I'm taking a break right now. I'm resting. I am supporting some other clients in the nonprofit news space and not rushing into (laughs) to anything just yet. So that's what I'm doing. And I remain a thought partner to Jean and a very enthusiastic cheerleader for Resolve and and all of the work. Obviously, it is like a child to me. So (laughs) we're still navigating what my relationship to the organization looks like other than, you know, cheerleading and and supporting from Michigan, which is where I live now. Great. Thank you both so much. 
And I have some questions that I want to dig into based on what you just shared from each of you. For example, Cassie, I want to hear a lot more about resting just because that has come up when we're thinking about the nonprofit sector and well-being. So I, I have some questions there. But before I turn to that, I wanted to hear a little bit more about resolve and just why you decided to create it. Because Jean, you mentioned like the three pillars of your work. And when you were describing it, I thought, right, this is exactly what journalism should look like. This is what access should look like. So what didn't exist that made you say we have to create resolve? Cass, you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, I think Jean and I came to resolve from very different backgrounds. Jean, I guess not very different. I'll take away that modifier. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jean, you know, had been a journalist reporting largely from the global south for the majority of her career. And I, at the time that we met, was working as the deputy executive director of the city of Philadelphia's agency tasked with eradicating poverty in our city. I mean, it was a really frustrating place to be. And I think I, without a background in journalism, you know, I didn't come to the organization to save journalism for journalism's sake, but I came to co-found the organization with Jean with an understanding of that journalism and, and specifically collaborative journalism and specifically collaborative journalism that is really driven by, with, for community members. It is a powerful tool, very powerful tool in creating the change that I started working for the city of Philadelphia to try to leverage. And we just wasn't seeing the needle move. This felt like a real opportunity to roll up my sleeves and do something that I knew could move the needle. And I think I'd just add to that by saying, Cassie mentioned like doing this for communities, communities in Philadelphia. When we say that word, because I think that's a word that's thrown around a lot these days, certainly in the journalism field, and I think in the nonprofit space writ large. And of course, clearly we are on this show because Resolve is a nonprofit. It is the 501c3. It is a nonprofit newsroom, which is kind of a growing model in the journalism space, though still certainly the minority in terms of the overall representation of how newsrooms are constructed. So when we talk about communities, we're very clear within Resolve that what that means for us, our priority communities, are those who have been long excluded by or harmed by traditional media narratives. And that is obviously a large amount of people. There's a lot of intersectionality that happens within those communities. In the city of Philadelphia, we're talking specifically about Black and Brown communities. I should also say, since we are on a podcast, I am white. So just want to put that out there when we're talking about this work. Black and brown communities in Philadelphia, we're talking about people who work low-wage jobs. We're talking about people in unsafe and unstable housing. So that's everyone from people within the reentry community to women who are experiencing domestic violence, as well as the disabled community. So those are our, those are our priority communities in Philadelphia. But kind of broadly, when we talk about that word, we're talking about people who have been harmed by the way that journalism has happened historically. Thank you for all of that. It's, it's really powerful just thinking about why Resolve exists. So thank you for walking me through all of that. When you 
talked about the pillars, I wanted to get a better sense of how each of them shows up. So you gave a really great description of each of the pillars. And I just wanted to see, particularly around community responsive and participation journalism, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, I can give a couple examples and then Kath can add on. So when we're talking about community responsive journalism, what we mean by that is that reporting is happening that is for people rather than about them, right? So this is like, it's a switching of two words, but it is a totally different piece, right? A totally different story reporting about, for example, someone's first 24 hours after they are released from prison, right? We can all kind of imagine that narrative. A reporter from a traditional newsroom spends the first 24 hours either, you know, or alongside someone who has just been released, or that person is kind of vividly recounting their story. And that is about that person. And it is for an audience who has never had that lived experience. If we think about what is the information or what is the reporting that someone who has just been released from prison need to get ahead in their lives, to find stable footing, to find a place to sleep, to find clothes, to be able to wear for job interviews that they want to go on, whatever it is, we're talking about a, a very different set of stories. And so that's kind of a an example of what we mean by community responsive journalism. And I should say that we also at Resolve, we don't presume to necessarily know what information folks need. And so we have a large community engagement team that spends its time building relationships with community organizations, primarily those who are led by people with lived experience of the folks that they are serving, really soliciting and trying to understand what information do you need in your lives? And how can we as reporters and as journalists provide that? So it is a slow process. It is a process that is very time-consuming and challenging at times. And it's very different than the way that journalism normally operates, which is editors and reporters sitting in a newsroom deciding what they think people need to know. I'll add that, I mean, on the participatory side, there are so many examples in Resolve's work, but I want to give two specific ones. The Our Kids Vision Hub, Our Kids is a editorial project that's led by Resolve's investigative solutions reporter, Steve Volk, and it focuses on families in Philadelphia, the child welfare system and and foster care. And one really concrete example of this community participation, which is central to Resolve's work, is it's more than an editorial advisory board. So we named it a vision hub. And it is really made up of people in the community who have lived experience within the foster care system in Philadelphia. And that's prioritizing foster parents, kids who have been in the foster system, and biological parents and families that have their own experiences within the child welfare system. And so This helps Steve with his storytelling. It helps Steve with his reporting. And it also is an opportunity for folks to engage in kind of non-editorial parts of the news process. And so that includes speaking places. It includes telling their own stories in first person. It includes, you know, connecting folks to opinion and editorial opportunities with resolves other partner publications. There's almost 30 of them across the city of Philadelphia. So 
that's a really specific way that people are participating, not just in the consumption of, but in you know all phases of the editorial process. Resolve in the past has also partnered with Community College of Philadelphia on training for citizen journalists is one phrase that is commonly used, but really residents across a community who are looking to build skills and tools to plug in better in more you know substantive ways to the local information ecosystem that is formal and informal mechanisms for delivering news and information. Thank you. And I think that really resonates just your your way that you're approaching this, because the word that keeps coming up for me as you are describing that is just authentic, right? And like you said, how do we make sure that the stories that are about historically marginalized communities are being told by historically marginalized communities or informed by them? So I really appreciate that. And you mentioned that, you know, Resolve is a nonprofit, 501c3. When you think about the nonprofit sector and Resolve's place in that sector, what do you think nonprofits could or should be doing more of or less of to strengthen the sector? More of paying people family-sustaining wages and offering competitive benefits. I think the industry as a whole <laughs> often, you know, kind of uses its, uh, <laughs> you know, the tax exempt status as a justification because your work is mission driven. You're doing it in part out of the goodness of your heart. And therefore, we don't pay. That's damaging, especially because, you know, we know that this is a sector that is really representative of women and of women of color. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that it's a sector that traditionally underpays, and that's important. And I think when Jean and I first set out, we were really, really conscious of what that meant for our organization. We set a goal of a minimum salary of $70,000 by 2024. And that was really intentional. The organization adds a new benefit to its benefit suite every single year. And so we founded this organization five years ago. I think when you build in as a priority from the get-go, solid benefits, aggressive pay that <laughs> like is you know reflective of the changing environment. The pandemic happened midway through our short five-year history, and that forced us to really think even more deeply about how we were supporting the people who were carrying out this important work. So I think more of all of that and Resolve isn't perfect, but the focus has been there since the beginning. And I think the organization will always prioritize supporting its people first and foremost. Yeah, I would, I mean, obviously agree with everything that Cassie said. And to sort of add on to that, I would say, more of facilitating work environments that allow people to show up as their whole selves. And I think this can happen in a number of ways. And I think some of it is really rests on the backs of employers and executives to not just pay people well, but also, as Cassie said, like have a whole suite of benefits that enable people, give people the flexibility that they need to be parents or caretakers or friends or partners, whatever 
roles they play in their lives outside of the work that they do, having that not feel in fundamental conflict with their job obligations, which is, I think, how a lot of working adults feel. And it's the tragedy. And I think it happens a lot in nonprofits, in part, as Cass said, sort of on this premise of, oh, but this sort of martyrdom that happens and we need to work really, really long hours to demonstrate that we are so dedicated to this mission that we deserve to be here and deserve to be doing this work. And I think breaking away from that and going back to what Cassie said about her ability to take a rest right now and just prioritizing that for herself. I think all of us who are in leadership positions both need that rest and can also facilitate our colleagues and people on our team taking the rest that they need so they're able to sustain the work in the long term. I agree with everything that you both have shared. A follow-up question I have is if I am a leader of a grassroots nonprofit organization and I'm listening to this and I completely agree with what you both have shared, but I'm looking at my budget, I'm looking at our needs as an organization, our funding, and then you know we'll get into just what we're seeing on the funder side as well, but What do you say to that leader who is saying, we're too small to be able to do that, or we're not able to do that? What can they do to get started? There are a few things. I want to note that you can fundraise on that. It is not sexy. It's not the amazing, programmatic, impactful work. It's harder to tell stories about the impact of $50,000 in capacity support so that you can raise your wages or add health benefits for your team. But there is storytelling to be done around that. And Jean and I had, I'll say tremendous, that might be like slightly hyperbolic, but I mean, decent success at fundraising around this very thing. We did a campaign towards the end of the pandemic about the rising costs of living and our need to be able to we you know shared with our our funders our goal of a $70,000 salary we set that goal within our budget we made incremental increases to salaries each year to bring everybody up to parity with the highest paid folks in our organization we didn't get there overnight but when you set it out as a priority when you look at your next year's budget and you say all right we're going to do a little bit because this is where we're going to be in 3 years or 5 years or 10 years and then you build some storytelling around that i think there's a lot to be said for the turnover rate at an organization that gives people space and resources and you know i think resolve has seen on top of that the impact of what an investment in really solid structures means for your future ability to take in resources we at the beginning of the pandemic we had a funder reach out to us and say listen we want to give you a million dollars to launch a thing and we said yeah we can do it and they had the faith in our ability to manage that kind of investment because they had just given us a grant for a much smaller amount of money so that we could build our strategic plan so that we could work with an attorney in structuring you know a certain part of our work and they had confidence in the partners that we were working with on our finances and even as a less than two-year-old organization, we had these structures in place and our funders knew it. That's really been a key part of all of our fundraising storytelling as we've 
built the structure of the organization. Thanks, Cassie. And, and Gina, I just want to check and see if you have anything that you'd want to add on that point. No, I think Cassie covered most of it. I mean, I think here is a line that we sometimes use, which anyone who is listening is welcome to borrow and use or adapt, which is that really cool ideas and projects are a dime a dozen, right? And what is going to make the difference between a really, really cool idea that you can pitch to a foundation and your ability to actually execute and sustain that cool idea over a long time is all of the stuff that Cassie just mentioned. It is the structural foundation for your organization in legal support, in paying family sustaining wages so that you don't have an incredible amount of turnover. It's all of these things. And that is what is going to ultimately make you successful. And that Foundations are being pitched cool ideas all of the time. And if you can demonstrate that you are the people, you are the leader who is thinking about all of the other unsexy stuff that those funders know is the thing that actually is going to make the cool idea successful over time and lasting over time, that's going to make you stand out. And so we literally write this into grant narrative saying like, we know that this is not sexy stuff and we know that you really want to hear about our cool ideas. But just so you know, we are thinking about all of the things that are going to sustain that over time. Right. No, that makes so much sense. Because what I'm hearing you both say is it's really around infrastructure, right? And telling the story of infrastructure and really making it people-centered, which it clearly is, but being able to tell that story really well and have it resonate with funders of the organization. So I think like just having that frame of mind and that approach of not, I've seen where, you know, folks have hidden this and said, we don't want to focus on this. This is not the things that funders want to pay attention to. So I think instead leaning into that and saying, this is the core of everything we want to do. And this is how we make sure that we have the infrastructure to sustain it. So that all makes a lot of sense. And when we're thinking that's the more, like what nonprofits should be doing more of, what comes up when we're thinking of what we should be doing less of as a nonprofit? Mm, I think we could be doing a little bit less of, I mean, Cass mentioned this when she was talking about the approach or the ethos that a lot of nonprofits take, which is using our tax status as a justification for a lot of things. And certainly we've heard these conversations in the nonprofit news sector of folks really struggling with alternative revenue strategies and wanting to rely entirely on philanthropy because of an assumption that's like, well, we're a nonprofit and so we can't really think or we're not, you know, we're not equipped to think about how we earn money. And in fact, it can and often is really important for nonprofits to think about revenue streams that aren't just philanthropy. And as long as they are mission aligned, that is totally okay and can be an excellent thing for a nonprofit. And so not using that, you know, doing less of kind of using the tax status to think that you have to rely exclusively on contributions or donations. The way that we think about this within Resolve, and not just think about it, but act on it, is we have a consulting practice 
that is really based on the expertise that we've built up as a team. And so some of our clients are newsrooms and we work with them on community engagement and collaboration, you know, stuff around those core pillars that we've talked about. And also Cassie and I, and Cassie is still working in this way with Resolve, Cassie and I are consultants for what we call operational resilience consulting. And so we work with leaders, not only in the newsroom space, but also in the nonprofit space more broadly around some of the stuff that we've been talking about. How do you create that scaffolding, that infrastructure within your organization that's going to sustain you over time? How do you make a more resilient organization by rethinking, for example, performance evaluations? Because performance evaluations kind of suck everywhere and there's better ways to do it. And so thinking about how do you improve onboarding processes, all of these things, all of the little things that are actually big things. So yeah, that would be that would be my answer. Thanks, Jane. I agree with that. I think when you start to look at revenue streams and making sure that we diversify them, it's critical, right? I, and I think that often you see nonprofits getting stuck with, well, I'm a C3 and I can only receive funds through contributions. And so just even like thinking more about how do we diversify and less on, we have this status and we can only receive this one type of funding. So yeah, that really resonates as well. Cassie, wanted to get your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think I agree with that. (laughs) I like to think about things as more because that makes me feel like we're thinking additive and not from like a deficit like framework. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I agree with what Jean said. I generally do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.